Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Good evening. Welcome to Critical Witness uh, on a Monday evening. It's our 30th conversation, and uh, if you're on the podcast, welcome as well. It's good to have you listening to us. Um, We've got a fantastic guest for you tonight uh, to talk about the Gospels and their reliability and whether they're history or not. If you're live, feel free to ask us questions as usual. We'll try and interact with them probably closer to the end of the conversation, Um, and uh, really, we're just going to get started with it because we, we've already got a bunch of questions lined up between Dan and myself. But I'm going to bring our guest into view. So welcome, Dr. Peter Williams. Uh, good you. Joining us. And um, it'd just be good to start with a little bit about who you are. So who yep. are you? Where do you work? And uh, why are you a Christian? So, yeah, I'm, I'm Peter Williams. I'm uh, 50, married to Catherine, got a couple of... Uh, uh, older children, and uh, I live in Cambridge, where I work at a place called Tinder House, lead, leading that, which is a Bible research centre, so Britain's largest library of the Bible, and people come from around the world and research. I grew up in a Christian family and uh, came to Christ sometime in my early teens and uh, have been uh, studying the Bible since then. Nice one. Uh, any particular sort of doubts along the way anything yeah. that sort of yeah. really trips you up so i mean having grown up in a christian family i and neither of my parents have been to university so when i went to university and first came across uh very very intelligent people um you know i was at cambridge who knew the bible and didn't believe it that uh sent me into a period of considerable doubt for a few years mm. And it was really working through those questions in my early 20s and then uh, finding answers, sharing answers. And a long journey sort of brought me to the point where I am, where I'm, uh, you know, very confident of, of uh, scripture, but also uh, recognize that the way people come to believe things uh, can be quite complex. It can. Uh, there's a lot of um, social elements that go into things as well as argument that, that, that persuade people. Did, did that play a part in you, you know, wanting to, to research and, and, and uh, specialise in the New Testament? Uh, not really. I mean, I was actually, I did my PhD in uh, Old Testament and um, I was wanting to become a Bible translator. So it's really just in my mid-twenties I started realising there, there was a gap and a need for um, evangelical Bible scholars Um and uh, that this could be a career. So uh, I, I did that. I, I ended up in New Testament because that was the only job there was when um, in Aberdeen and I became a lecturer in New Testament. And, and I, I still love the old and, and, and do work in that, but end up uh, straddling it too. Um, I guess I'll just get start firing questions let's, at you. We've, got, 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 got we've, we've already got a question in the chat as well. So we'd, yeah, um, go. <laughs> I guess a good one would be um, there's, there's wild scope in terms of a lot of the the uh, the dates i've seen ascribed um to the to the gospels um 
obviously the later ones tend to be from people who are more sort of skeptical and i've also seen some sort of much earlier dates ascribed to some of the gospels as well i guess so i guess what would be helpful is when when from your perspective uh where do you think the best evidence for is in terms of the dates for the dates for the, the four gospels well at one level i want to say there isn't much um and that that is that people who are rational can hold very different dates for the Gospels. I mean, within a range, they've got to be before their earliest manuscripts, and they really should be before people start quoting them. So it all depends when you think Gospels get quoted. I mean, I, I think uh, Gospels slightly quote each other, but let's say Matthew's getting quoted by Irenaeus, um, he's getting quoted by Ignatius in the early second century. You really need to put Matthew before then. But then there's also the type of material you have in Matthew that I think drags it a lot earlier. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the, the Gospels don't come with dates on, they come with names on. And I keep on saying this and people keep on saying, but you must believe in some particular dates for the Gospels. And and I say, no, you know, I, I, if, look, if Matthew was a disciple of Jesus and Matthew wrote Matthew's Gospel, then that is going to put limits on when Matthew's Gospel was written because people don't live forever. Uh, same with John. Um, if Luke is a, uh, a doctor in the 50s traveling around with Paul, again, that puts limits on when you can put him. But there aren't really solid reasons to put particular dates on things. Now, some people say, you know, Luke uh, is part of two volumes, Luke-Acts. Acts ends suddenly around the year 61, 62. So therefore, let's put Luke earlier. You can do that. Or you can say they don't refer to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Well, they do. Uh, and people... <laughs> Uh, you know, people who don't believe that Jesus could predict that destruction, therefore might put the Gospels afterwards. But at the end of the day, there's nothing in them that uh, really compels you one way or the other. Um, but I would say when I look at the material in the Gospels, the material is not such the sort of material that has been through multiple retellings. Um, it's actually very authentic, uh, Palestinian in detail. It's um, not... Um, it, it's got the hallmarks of one particular teacher at the beginning, um, most obviously Jesus rather than anyone else. Um, so it's the type of material I, I deal with, and I say it's first generation. I guess the uh, for, for for modern is that's difficult. That raises sort of a lot of questions. Because obviously, people assume, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, that uh, well, I mean, historians obviously would prefer things to be earlier to the source. But um, for a lot of people, they find that the Gospels, if they're written potentially several decades after the events they described, then doesn't that increase the likelihood that those accounts are, are less reliable than accounts that there's evidence for that they were written much earlier? Well, a, a bit, but not a lot, because, I mean, you really you look at the newspapers and they can be lying about what happened yesterday. Or you can talk to someone who was alive in the Second World War and what it was like. I've got a 101-year-old granny I can talk to about, you know, what it was like in the 1920s. Um, and, and, and really, in terms of sources of information, I don't think that the difference between five and 30 years makes a lot of difference. I mean, I struggle to remember what I was doing last week, but there are some things from 30 years ago I can remember just as well. I mean, why, why would I, I think that makes a big thing? Um, so I, I, I do push back against this obsession that people have with dates. Now, there are some dates uh, put on the Gospels in the fourth century where the church historian um, Eusebius uh, claims there are particular years the Gospels are written and he has them written, um, you know, 10 years, 20 years after the events and, and so on. 
Um, and some of those occur in some manuscripts, but not the earliest ones. Uh, but at the end of the day, unless you're going to go with those, they don't come with dates on, even if study Bibles sometimes put dates on. <laughs> Good. No, that's, that's, that's helpful. Phil, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was uh, just testing. Everything's working, so I'm I'm, I'm good with that. That so I, I think one of the the sort of burning questions that um, I've I've got well, there's two. Uh, um, maybe I'll try and compartmentalise them a little bit. The first one is is things in the Gospels that should or shouldn't be. Um, so a big one I was asked recently by a Muslim friend of mine is that um, John seven fifty three to all of John eight the the woman of the well, woman caught in adultery. Yeah, caught in adultery. That's the one. Um, sh- that's not in the earliest manuscripts. Mm-hmm. That should totally undermine our trust in these documents because there's these insertions uh, into the manuscripts. H- how do you respond to that? Um, does it undermine yeah. things at all? Yeah. So I mean, I was responsible for the. I think the first Greek uh, New Testament uh, in print, which not to include that. Um, passage in fact so uh, if you look at the tin the house greek new testament it's d- down in a footnote and and so on um and what i'd say is that it's not in a large number of the earliest manuscripts it's clearly secondary but that does not provide any evidence uh, that the rest is not trustable in fact it does the reverse because what it shows us is there's been no great bonfire of manuscripts. So if you want to know where are the New Testament manuscripts, well, there are some in Oxford, there are some in Cambridge, there are some in London, some in Paris, some in Athens, some in Moscow. They're all around the place. And there's no time in history where all of those groups have got together and coordinated to have their manuscripts. So if we can go to all these different libraries, monasteries, and so on, and we can check the data and we can find differences, great thing is we know no one's been eradicating the differences. So this is really wonderful. And um, if you look at what was known 500 years ago, a guy called Erasmus, um, is you know, one of the really bright guys. He gathers manuscripts. He knew that there were doubts about that passage, and he knew there was doubts about the uh, 12 verses at the end of Mark. Since his time, we have a 1,000 times more manuscripts, approximately, than were available to him uh, immediately, and uh, we don't have lots of new uncertain passages. So in other words, as the number of manuscripts is growing, we're not finding new bits that are uncertain. And so this is something you, you can run an experiment on. It's, it's if you wanted to find out how many deer there are in a particular area, um, it's provided it's enclosed, you can go out and catch a few of them, and then you mark the ones you catch, you release them back into the same area, then you go back another day, and you find out how many of the ones you catch next time actually have marks on, and from that you can calculate how many deer there are. You can do exactly the same with New Testament textual variants. You can work out, based on, when we know how many variations there are and we discover new manuscripts, based on that, how many variations have there been in all manuscripts that have ever existed, including ones that don't survive? Um, and based on that, it's not that there's a vast number of um, uh, differences and it's always growing. In fact, you can th- there are the limits of, of, of uncertainty, which is really good. So I, I think actually these two passages, because it is two 12-verse passages there are at the end of Mark and one in john seven to eight and the fact that they are not in the earliest manuscripts but show up in later ones gives us a really good solid ground for which to argue that all of the rest has not had additions interpolations and so on that's, that's amazing um, I'm not, 
I just add something. Sorry, just yeah. I might be wrong about this. I might, I might be misremembered. But was it was the adulterous uh, passage was that found in some other manu- some other gospels as well? Was that in Luke? Um, yeah. So so it's it's the earliest manuscript of it is is in in Cambridge, eight hundred yards from where I'm sitting, um, and it's fifth century Codex Bezai. Um, and uh, if it's found anywhere in any other position. It's uh, from uh, after the fifth century in terms of the actual physical copies we have. Um, right. But the story probably goes back to the second century, may go back to the first century. I mean, I'm not saying the story is unreliable. It's, that sounds perfectly plausible. Um, I'm just saying um, we've got a significant number of early manuscripts of John that don't have it. Uh, the easiest position to defend is that it's not part of the original. Um, and um, it, for me, that passage vindicates all of the rest. So, and I've got a couple of questions that kind of link into this. So there's two questions in, in particular. Uh, one is uh, Muslim told uh, London theist, I'll put it on the screen so you can see it. Um, the Thomas proclamation, my Lord, my God, wasn't in all of the earliest manuscripts. Is is that someone playing games with the manuscripts or is that? So, so I mean, it is. Um, so, you know, John 20, 28 is not lacking in manuscripts. Um I mean, unless the manuscript just has broken off, but there's no, I mean, no, it, it's there. Um, and yeah, people may not like what it says, but, it, you know, it, it, it's part of the uh, original John's gospel. I think it's also part of the style of the gospel uh, where you've got at this climactic point to talk uh, of, of Jesus as God as you do in the first verse. So um, I think all of that brings things together. Um and that's how and generally speaking all the times there are um things missing or not in the earliest manuscripts whatever that you do have footnotes in in our bibles so i yeah, think yeah. that'd be the first point i'd go to in that kind of conversation the other thing is you can follow through the logic of the passage so the passage in john 20 has got a sequence whereby um the beloved disciple sees and believes and then Mary hears and believes, and and then Thomas says he wants to touch. But the funny thing is that Thomas actually comes to the greatest profession of um, belief about Jesus, and and that's where you know, whereas Mary's just called him Rabboni. So I, I think you've actually got even the literary structure of John demands that that sentence be there. You can't just take that out and say, oh, I'm going to have all of the rest and and not have that. I mean, John is very carefully written. Um, it's at the right place. Cool. And there's, there's one more uh, in here. The uh, Father, forgive me, for they know not what they do. Yep. Is, is that in? Is that a insertion? Yes, the Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, Luke 30, uh, 23, 34 yeah. Yeah. Um, is not in all the earliest manuscripts. So people um, debate about whether that should be in or out. Um, we have it in in the Tinderhouse Greek New Testament, published with Cambridge University Press, um, and uh, we will have a defence of why it should be in published in about two years' time when there's a big commentary on that. Um, but yes, I mean it, it's so there are those sort of things that at the end of the day it's not a, a make or break thing, um, as in it's not a is Christianity true or not based on. Uh, whether this verse is there sometimes when people copy things out at length they can miss out phrases by accident so that that could uh, be happening there Um, I think there's a bit more going on uh, with that but I think you can make a good case that it's it's genuine I can go into the technical stuff if you want 
Uh, maybe if we have some time later on, we'll, we'll, we'll try. We've uh, only got you for an hour fifteen rather than three, so we'll <laughs> try and keep it to the, to the uh, succinct. People can find the other resources uh, as, as they go. Dan, do you have anything on on insertions or anything like that you want to follow up on? Um, no, I mean, what are, are there any? What are the sort of most recent ones? Is that is that is that the sort of one you? I actually hadn't heard of that one. That one's new to me. The the father, uh, forgive them. I wasn't aware that that's lacking in some early manuscripts. Yeah, well, so. well I'm, I mentioned um, I, I've written this little book, Can We Trust the Gospels? And somewhere in there, I mention all of the significant ones that there are uh, debates over. Um, and so, um, you know, it's not that there's a large number of these, um, but I mean, the other thing is if you use the net Bible, the net Bible gives you all the gory details on anything you want, uh, you know, death by footnote. Uh, so if you want to uh, try the net Bible, that's another way of, 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 of looking at these things. But I, I do mention this, uh, page 115 of my, um, of my, uh, little book. I have to go back to that. So I've missed that. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's just yeah. Um, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> um, I guess some other ones. I, I mean, we can come back to the insertions. I'm sure people will bring some others up as well. But I, I, another one that's kind of brought up that I'm quite interested in is I know you talk about in the book is is authorship. Is you know how how early were the the, the traditional names that we ascribe to the Gospels uh, first ascribed? Yeah. And what what is the kind of what's the best case for the traditional authorship? So yeah, there are two different questions there. But the, the the question of being on the manuscripts, they're on all of the earliest manuscripts that have survived where you should have a name, have a name. So what I mean is this: that one of the things they'd do is they would write a name in a running header across the top of the page. So if you can see the top of the page in any early gospel manuscript, and you've got enough pages, because they don't necessarily put it on every top of every page, but just some of them, uh, then you have a name. If you can see the beginning or end of the gospel, then you have a name. And it's always Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And these names are not stuck on later because basically people don't invest uh, the sort of money it takes to produce a gospel. You've got to get physical writing material. Someone prepares the papyrus or the animal skin in order to write on and spend some time writing it and then not label a book. People just don't do that. If you look at Pompeii, which, you know, Vesuvius erupted in the year 79, they actually have uh, a, a picture of a, a jar full of different um, uh, different scrolls, and those scrolls have labels on. So even if you didn't write the name within the book, you would label the book. So the idea that the Gospels began as like anonymous unlabeled books doesn't really work and it doesn't work in marketing terms either i mean how would they spread if there's no name on them i mean uh, copying books is an expensive business if these things are going to get off the ground um it's it's got to happen i mean it's it, you know thing, things can go viral on the internet nowadays without anyone having invested a lot although it, it, how exactly they were viral we're not quite sure but in order to get something to spread significantly People have got to be investing in order to do that, investing time and money. Um, and, and that's not going to happen if you're not labeling literature. It doesn't make any sense. And if they didn't label the Gospels and then people started labeling them later, you'd expect there to be diversity. So some people would label, uh, you know, this is the Gospel of Fred and this is the Gospel of, you know, so-and-so. And, -so, and it, it just wouldn't all match up. 
Um, and uh, there was a other question, which was like, how do we know that Matthew Mark Luke wrote the Gospels? Is that the other? Yeah, the other? yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, again, it, it's a question. It's a question about how you know anything, I suppose, uh, as as many m many things are. I can't prove Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and John wrote wrote the Gospels, but I can show you that those four authors of the Gospels are a whole load more reasonable, plausible, and everything else than any alternative. Um, so, uh, the um, I mean, you, you take the case of Mark and Luke. I think Mark and Luke would would be nobodies if it weren't for the Gospels. So it's a bit like. J.K. Rowling was made famous by the Harry Potter series. So it's not that her name was put onto the series to sell them. Um, no, the series made her famous. In this, that's what's happened with Mark and Luke. They, they were not well-known people either. And they weren't of, of Jesus' 12 disciples. There's no reason anyone would stick those names on in order to give things more credibility. Later, apocryphal fake gospel writers like to use names of 12 disciples, Thomas and so on, Philip, um, because that gives credibility, but that wouldn't work for Ma uh, Mark and Luke. And as for um, Matthew and John, there's loads of evidence in Matthew that the guy thinks a lot about finance, like a tax collector would, uh, more references to money uh, and, and, and so on uh, than the other Gospels. Also, he knows a ton about Judaism. He knows a ton about Pharisees and their customs and, you know, the, the herbs that they tied and everything like this. He, um, and, and John knows a, a whole load about um, Palestine, the geography, the layout, Jerusalem, these sorts of things. So you have to have authors that would have a similar profile to uh, Matthew and John in order to write these things and then somehow write these wonderful pieces of literature and then disappear into the background. Uh, Thank you. No, that's that's helpful. I mean, what now you've mentioned John. What mm -hmm. um, Could you explain for people a little bit about what what the, the synoptic problem is um yeah well some people talk about a synoptic problem synopsis really means you're looking together and there are three gospels that are closer to each other than uh the fourth gospel uh which is john so matthew mark and luke are quite close to each other um and Ma uh, matthew and mark have got quite a bit of common wording and then particularly when it comes to parables and so on uh matthew and luke have, have got lots of, of, of common wording. And so people say, aha, there's a problem here that people have been copying off each other and so on. Actually, the way the four gospels are designed is optimal. Because if you were to have three that are closer to each other and have some sort of relationship, literary or oral relationship together, and another one that's separate, that gives you the maximum numbers of um, types of literature to deal with. Because if you imagine that you had four gospels, call them A, B, C, and D, and A and B were really close to each other, and C and D were really close to each other. In that case, people would say, aha, well, D is a copy of C, and B is a copy of A, so we've just got two Gospels, two sources. Um, whereas what we have uh, with, and if you had just four independent Gospels that had no relationship, you'd have very little way of testing them against each other. But what we have now is we have things that Matthew and uh, Luke share. We've got material uh, that they each share with Mark. We've got things that are only in Matthew, things that are only in Luke, and things in John. That's five types of material. So actually, and you've got ways in which you can critically analyze things. So I do think that the the four Gospels, the way they are, is optimal. optimal. I, d I don't know of another way of having four Gospels give you as much variety of material as the setup we have. So just on the sort of, 
basing it on the sources oftentimes the the q source comes comes out uh when when these conversations happen yeah do you think q is something that would be written and I've, I've sort of my own working thesis that i'm interested to know if it has any plausibility is that q is just uh both could be holy spirit inspiration but also the fact that there was a community of believers that shared these stories and that's the, the shared source it yeah. would would that be a good response or do you think yeah so uh, well back up and explain the idea q is just the german word quella meaning source um and it's a way that people have hypothesized to explain the relationship between matthew and luke so matthew and luke have some common material sayings material and so the idea has been that matthew and luke both draw on this let's call it q and they each draw on mark and that's been a common way of viewing things for over 100 years um the problem is you know part of the way of explaining this is you don't want matthew or luke really to know about each other uh they need to write independently because otherwise you can just simply explain them from borrowing each other um so you have to suppose that there was a document or something which was widespread enough to be used by these matthew matthew and luke in the two different places they were and then disappears from history leaving no trace whatsoever and you have to suppose that just independently they decide to write the gospel uh, the birth narratives onto this even though that's not part of q and and so on and it becomes a little bit implausible and one guy um a brit who's over in 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 um in the U.S. at Duke uh, Divinity School, um, Mark Goodacre uh, has uh, actually written quite a few books arguing against Q that it's an unnecessary hypothesis. Um, certainly, I, I think it, it, it's just a model. That's all. That's all it is. Um, and there's plenty of very qualified. Um, New Testament scholars who are not conservative scholars who don't believe in Q. That's that's really increasing, I would say. Um, so uh, I, I would say it's a fine model. I can work with it, um, but I don't I don't have to sign up to that. Um, at the end of the day, it's probably better to spend our time focusing on this on the materials, the documents we do have, one than the ones that might exist. Hmm. Might have, we don't have copies of. Before we um, just fin finish on John, what who I was, is, is it Richard Borkham? I think who, who there's some debate about um, who exactly John is. Yeah, do you do you understand John to be the uh, the disciple or or, yeah, some, yeah, yeah. or, or, or another John? I mean, there's probably more than one John around. I mean, it's it's a common enough name, and certainly an early guy, early second century called Papias, seems to think there are there are two different Johns. So you can have John the son of Zebedee and another John. I take the John who wrote John's Gospel to be John the son of Zebedee, even though that's not the position that um, Richard Borkham, who's an extremely learned guy, really clever, um, he doesn't take that position. But I mean, I, I think it's the simplest position. It, and it, it fits with the sort of process of elimination if you go through the gospel and you look at the different characters uh, and who's there, who's not there. Uh, it, it works. Um, Westcott wrote a commentary over 100 years ago, uh, basically making a case for why it's John. I think that uh, John, the son of Zebedee, I think that that, that still stands. But at, the, but at the end of the day, um, I'd also want to say, regardless of you know which john it is it it does make sense that this is an eyewitness the the, the um 
the writer says, uh, you know, this is the one who saw, he saw the water and the blood come out at the crucifixion. Uh, so it's claiming to be eyewitness uh, testimony. And uh, there's lots of evidence that it, that is the sort of thing it is. Thank you. That, that's that's helpful. Um, I try another thing. So I've got so many questions. Hey, you go for I've got a few, there's a few in the chat. Them. Um, in terms of the, the gospels, obviously you've got the four gospels, but they at times they describe, um, you know, Jesus saying G Jesus sayings in different ways. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what are the are the gospels presenting? Is it just the vox, the voice, or 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 how do we know which one's verbatim? The you know actually saying yeah. the actual yeah, the yeah. words of Jesus, or, or does that matter? Yeah, well, I mean, how many times have you repeated your most repeated talk? Yeah, a lot. I don't tend to several several times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, probably I, at done, least four, four or five. I've done some talks sixty times, you know, and and they vary. Yeah. They're, they're not they're not quite the same. They they vary every single time. But you can be in a position where, okay, you're a disciple. Your job is as a student to learn your master's sayings. Um, and you could actually, after you've been around with him a few times, you could actually give quite a few of his talks by uh, by memory. I mean, not 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 every single bit, but the basic sayings about love and some of the famous sayings. If you come up with something as brilliant as the Beatitudes in Matthew, are you only going to say them once? I mean, no, no, this doesn't make any sense. So the Sermon on the Mount, which we call the Sermon on the Mount, of course, is actually the lesson on the Mount. It says he went up on the mountain and he taught them. So I think he teaches them and, you know, OK, so let's say after me, this is how it goes um, or, or however it is. I mean, we don't know, but but um, it, it doesn't have to be that. You suppose the disciples have just these amazing memories where they could just listen to a speech once and, and, and recite it. No, no, nothing like that. It's the fact that these things are said so often. Um, and, and so that's a really significant thing, because if you look within the Gospels, you actually see within the Gospels that there are claims within each of them that Jesus repeats himself. So in Mark's Gospel, several times Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's in Mark's gospel. Um, and um, you'll have sayings about the lost more than once in Luke. You'll have sayings about whoever has more will be given more, uh, more than once in Matthew. And you look at each of these gospels. They are actually saying Jesus repeated himself. So, so I think we've got to start with the surface claim that Jesus was a teacher who repeated himself, which is also something we'd expect any teacher to do. Um, so therefore... <laughs> What's happening is then people are reading the Gospels nowadays, imagining that sayings come from Jesus to us along this really narrow thread. There's just one possible person who might remember something that Jesus said, you know, blessed are the cheesemakers or whatever it was. <laughs> it's absurd because he's got 12 guys whose job it is to learn what he says. Hmm. So I think there are loads of bands along which the Jesus teaching is going. You, you mentioned a lot about mem uh, memory. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's quite a lot of work that goes into um, you know the uh, the extent of oral tradition and the gospels yep. being preserved orally. What uh, you, what do you think about that? I mean, uh, were the gospels yeah. in some sort of format orally, and then were later because I've heard it said you know they were they were communicated orally and, until you know uh, disciples started getting old. And then they were put down on, you know, papyrus. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I'd be interested in what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I'm not really interested. I mean, I just think it's, it's mostly baloney. Of course, we know that memory can be really good or really bad. Um, 
And uh, yes, there might be some exceptional positions uh, in which people can develop really good storytelling memories. And maybe their culture had better memories than ours. But hang on. I mean, I don't think we have to go for that sort of thing. I mean, most most of us have know, you know, 10,000 lines of poetry or whatever it is. Um, and if, you know, if I just say these are not the droids you're looking for, everyone knows what I'm talking about, you know, uh, where it comes from, exactly where it comes from. And, and, and people have a familiarity with this. Um, or whether it's the Goodnight Moon book or whatever it is they were read when they were young. Um, so I think that people can memorize large amounts of text. Um, but that doesn't have to be the only way that Jesus stories can get to us, because after all, people used wax tablets back then. So wood, you layer some wax on and they can scribble on that so they can take notes at the same time as Jesus or they can learn, um, memorize. Um, and there are lots of them. So I, I, I really not interested in about how it gets from um, Jesus to the Gospels, because I think there's lots of evidence when I look at the evidence of the Gospels and, and study its wording carefully that you need to have Jesus, um, the person who comes up with his teaching. Um, that's the way I do it, rather than the question of how. Um, so give you an example, the, the, the parable of, of, of the prodigal son. Um, it's clearly a unified story. So I don't think it's a simple way to explain it. It's made up by a committee. And if you have it made up by Luke or a disciple, the problem is it's a very Jewish story. It's really based in the Old Testament. It's a retelling and uh, rejigging of the um, uh, Jacob Esau story. Everything's reversed. Uh, older brother out in the field, you know, younger brother cheating him out of his inheritance. Younger brother goes off into a far country, comes back, and guess what? The father runs towards him, embraces him, and kisses him, which is what Esau does when Jacob comes back. The only time in the entire Old Testament that someone runs, embraces, and, uh, and kisses uh, someone. And so you've got all of that going on. And the story is set where Jesus is telling this story to um, Pharisees and scribes and sinners and tax collectors. And so he's got Bible experts there in the audience. And he is throwing in so many details from the Old Testament. It's just unbelievable. I'm going to write a book about this, actually. Um, and it doesn't make sense to have anyone other than a complete Old Testament genius, someone who really knows the Old Testament really well, to be telling that story. And it's much simpler to say it's Jesus than anyone else. So I say, OK, somehow that story has got to Luke's gospel. Uh, now, does someone take notes? Does someone memorize it? I don't really know. I don't know. And I don't care. All <laughs> I can say is when I look at the quality of material, it, it seems to be pretty good quality. And, and I think I can use that sort of argument time and time again. I think I found, I found that quite helpful through the, the coming trust, the gospel book of just how difficult it is to fit the other alternatives into it, it makes it more complex any other theory other than it being one teacher um with a few people around him even with the speed at which it spread across the the known world you, the moment you start introducing well maybe it was a group of different people that starts to get really complicated very quickly, especially with, with things like trying to put insertions in and, and things like that into the text. Um, so I'm realizing that we're going quite fast through different things and we might circle back to that, but if we're, we're happy, I'd, I'd like to just touch on some of the contradictions that people are throwing up in the, um, or apparent contradictions, if we, we're going to go that way. Um, there's there's a few here, and I'll just, maybe we can hit a few of them um, 
pretty quickly. And the, the first one we had, if I can go all the way back up to it, was um, Judas, who, who bought the field, uh, which is actually between Acts and Matthew 27. Yeah, sure. who, who bought the field, field of blood, and is that a contradiction? Well, so what it what it what it tells us is that um, in Acts uh, that Judas acquired a field, and then it will tell you in Matthew that the, the, the priest bought it, but the priests can't buy it in their own name. So something has to be in some legal name. Are you going to buy it with blood money in the name of the temple? No. Are you as a priest going to insert your own name on the title deeds? I mean, because people actually wrote title deeds for these things. We have title deeds for ancient ancient fields. So it's got to be done in some name. So that the, the obvious name to put this under is Judas's name. Um, so and, and then it can be you know passed on, it can be made common land, but it has to have some name on. So I, I think that um, I mean there's this saying in Latin, qui facit per alium facit per se, who does it through someone else does it themselves. Um, there is this thing that you can have something done, you can have something built. And often it will be described in an ancient work as the king built it. Well, the king didn't build it. He had people do it. Um, so I, I think that's all that's going on. I mean, and, and if at the end of the day, people's reason they can't believe that scripture is entirely true is something as lame as that. I think, wow, you know, mm. what's going on? Um, the lack of or maybe it's lack of resources or an inability to study further. I, I know it's, it's something that I'm, I'm aware of in, in sort of engaging with at least ex-Christians to some extent, people who assume that they know the Bible and can quote these verses to you, but have never been taught how to exegete or find context or, or look at resources. They think it should just be really obvious. And if one thing contradicts the other. I mean, another thing that's going on is I think sometimes people can be set up with false expectations. So they're sort of told in church that the Bible is a magical book, which <laughs> has no functions at all in. When, of course, the Bible is... 66 books load of books and they are all written you know, each written in their own styles and why would you ever expect them to fit together simply mm. uh, so if you don't ex i mean part of it is your expectation if you don't expect them to fit together simply you're not thrown when they don't um and um you know what if god set this absolutely huge puzzle i mean i just think there's loads of things that in the bible are puzzling how this bit fits with that that's the way it's meant to be mm. I find it really helpful to to look at it as as I think it was um, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project said it's something along the lines of instead of coming to it as a a manual for life, it's, uh, it's something to come and sort of wrestle with God <laughs> with in in the sense that it's yeah. it's not necessarily meant to be easy. Yeah. Um, I don't know how your your memory is. It seems pretty good. <laughs> it's a test. Luke twenty two forty three to forty. Yeah, yeah. So the bloody sweat. So. <laughs> yeah, so the, I mean, this is a case where in Luke and only in Luke, you have this angel appears to Jesus when he's in the garden and, and, and sweating blood. And some early manuscripts um, don't have that important early manuscripts. And some people have made a good argument uh, that this shouldn't be part of the original. And some people have made a good counter argument that it should be part of the original. So Bart Ehrman makes the argument it's not part of the original. And Claire Clivaz would be an example, a scholar from Switzerland. Uh, who makes an argument that it, it should be part. I go for it being part of the uh, original. I think uh, that um, you could, there are manuscripts on both sides, so it's really a question of what's, uh, what's uh, plausible. I think it's got the, um, the right style, uh, that it's, it's got sort of medical-type language um, used there, which is the sort of thing I've come to associate with Luke, 
Um, and, and that's easier to explain by actually coming from Luke than being added by someone else who uses that same sort of style of writing. Um, so I, I go for that. Uh, but at the end of the day, the reliability of Luke's passion account doesn't depend on whether that's in or not. Um, some people have said, ah, oh, but it does completely change it because otherwise you have um, Jesus basically uh, painlessly going to the cross. But I don't think that's ever the sense of what's going on in Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke has this clear sense from the beginning of the pain of the cross. A sword is going to be going through uh, Mary's uh, heart uh, that, that actually this is, um, this, this is a big deal. Hi there, this is Phil Duncalf. Thank you so much for listening to the Critical Witness podcast. If you like what you hear, please do uh, subscribe, share the episode and write a review. It will help others find us. And if you really like what you hear and want us to grow, please do consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash critical witness. Enjoy the rest of the show. Great. Here's, here's another one straight away. I'll read it just for the podcast listeners later on. Bible contradiction. Did Jesus rise on the third day or was he in the earth for three days and nights? Uh, that's sort of one that I've I've heard as well on a website that uh, says that how long was Jesus in the tomb? Is de- So Mark 10, 34, Jesus says he'll rise again after three days. Matthew 12, 40 says Jesus says he'll be in the earth three days and three nights. Yeah. Your- well, the answer is yes. Um, and what's really interesting is no one in the early church seems to have a problem with this at all no no one zero um and uh, they also are really happy interchanging on the third day and after three days they just because those basically mean the same thing because people count differently you know inclusive and exclusive types of reckoning and it does seem within judaism that part of a day is counted as a whole day and so you can get um because they're switching over days in in the evenings and an evening and a morning go together uh you go from a friday to a monday that can be three days and three nights it can also be on the third day and i would say we do something similar uh in english because in english we talk about fortnight a fortnight later 14 nights but in french they say 15 jours 15 uh, days. Uh, we talk about a week of seven days, but in Scots, they say Seinicht, a sixth night. So in fact, uh, there are different ways of counting the same thing. And if you take the French idea of something happening five, 15 days later, 15 jours après, if you count back one day at a time in French, you get the first day being one day after itself. So in other words, um, you can have an idiom which you're not able to um, deconstruct into its con- component parts to get the meaning that's one way of looking at it the other uh, way i'd look at it is if you look in first samuel chapter 30 where you have the um, egyptian who's been abandoned and not eaten for three days and three nights you read that in the context it clearly means three days in our sense so um this is the guy that you remember that um david finds who leads them to the amalekites so uh, I, I would say you have biblical analogy for why that isn't a um a problem and again you know these none of these are sort of defeater type problems what we're Mm. generally finding with um what seemed like bible problems is like little tweaky things that you just you know fiddle around with 
Mm. Are, there, are there not other like precedents as well, like Esther fasting for three uh, days and, um, and Jonah as well? Um, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, 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 so there's loads of... The pattern is really significant, running right through the Old Testament. So this is what I'd also want to say. Let's load this in, that um, the Bible story, even though it clearly the Bible is written by many different authors, has all the most useful things you're going to want to come together at the climax, the de Jesus' death and resurrection, are being prepared for in this story beforehand. That's a really cool feature of Scripture, which you need to bear in mind is a good argument for its truth, rather than just be hung up all the time on how does this fit fit with that, if that makes sense. That's really, yeah, really helpful. Um, just there's two more that I'll just focus on the... Um, contradictions uh one's probably quite quick because i think it's in your conversation with bart ehrman on unbelievable um just about how continuing with judas how did he actually die are the accounts related to his death contradictory so we can just refer to that discussion yeah you uh, can um, and i'd also re refer to james bijon b-e-j-o-n on twitter who's written a wonderful um thread on this um what we've got to say is also i mean matthew just gives us one word and Luke gives us Peter's description. So it's not what Luke's description, it's Luke describing what Peter said. Okay. Hmm. Um, so at, at the very uh, uh, basic level, Peter is describing to a group of people who apparently already know the story, what happened. That's, that's, that's the whole setting of what's going on in Acts. Um, and uh, Peter is making a theological point about what happened um, to Judas. And he says he became headlong. Now, headlong, um, and I, I, I'm not quite as clear on this on the debate with Bart Ehrman as I became afterwards. I realized headlong actually means flat. Um, doesn't have to mean head first. And the point is, how does one become that? And then it says his entrails gushed down. It doesn't give you a lot of detail. So in other words, Luke's account in Acts, um, describing what Peter says, doesn't give you enough to be able to reconstruct things. But you've somehow got to have some vertical elevation from which you can fall enough to have your entrails gush out and guess what matthew gives you that matthew gives you the idea of him hanging so i think you can add the two together but we can't actually get behind the words that there are to reconstruct it and and draw it you know uh we can simply say there's no reason to think that both of those accounts can't be be true he, he died <laughs> at the end of it. Yeah, and he didn't die a nice death. The other thing yeah. that James Bijan makes uh, a, a point about is that um, there are a couple of um, different deaths in the Old Testament associated with the people who rebel against David. One is the advisor, Hittophel, uh, who hangs himself, and the other is Absalom, who um, uh, goes into a tree and then uh, gets um, uh, various bits stuck in him, so uh, it's not so nice for him. And actually, that those are the two different Old Testament types that are behind uh the stories in matthew and in in acts and i think that's another plausible thing thing so probably probably with these so-called contradictions people are too quick at trying to solve them they're trying to get rid of them too quickly rather than enjoying them run with it you know enjoy the thrill of this look at what's actually going on um in in the text and then from that you'll find they're usually um you know saying compatible things I think that's a really interesting point that there's stuff going on from the Old Testament as well, that oftentimes the things that are weird aren't necessarily that they want you to look at the detail of how they died, but look at the illusion mm -hmm. 
he, the the fact of the matter is he died. Let's let's look at where this points us to, yeah. and, and I, I find that really helpful. So, kind of last one on the on the theme of contradiction. Um, there might have been not one that just came in. This one's uh, possibly a little bit more technical. I'm not, I'm not sure. Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson has come to argue that the Gospels disagree in minor and major issues, e.g. women in the tomb, uh, how many there are at the tomb, I think that's about, and thus make it an unsatisfactory tale of Jesus. I guess you've kind of answered that so far. Are there any contradictions? Maybe we'll just kind of do a coverall uh, for this section. Are there any contradictions that have given you pause as to whether or not the Gospels are reliable? Or point us to Jesus existing? Um, not now. I mean, I think I want to. I want to go into the resurrection accounts a bit because I think yep. they're just they're just important. And yep. um, part of it is um, I've got no problem with there being difficulties there uh, and or, or, or tensions because at the end of the day, I think whatever the relationship between the four gospels is before the resurrection accounts, when you get to the resurrection accounts, they seem to be pretty independent. Um, that is it. So, so that's quite good. And if you add the bits in the accounts together, you have to have at least six women going to the tomb. Uh, you know, you've got a couple of Marys, uh, Salome, Joanna, and uh, Luke's talking about other women. You, you end up having six. Well, do these six women all move around in a crowd at exactly the same angle do they all bundle into the tomb and see exactly the same things or are they actually allowed to move and then report to different disciples what they actually saw and are angels allowed to move and so on and if you start putting these sort of things in you start realizing that what people are saying is a defeat a contradiction is nothing of the sort it's simply the sort of uh, low-level noise you get of differences uh, when you get um uh, different, uh, you know, independent accounts. And then there's this stunning thing in the four Gospels uh, that you get these um, tiny agreements in wording. So between Matthew and John, which have very different accounts. I mean, when you read read Matthew, you get the impression that the angels there at the tomb, the guards are all scared. Um, uh, and then the women come along, see the angel, and there's a conversation. Um, and then in, in John, you've got this thing about Mary goes to the tomb alone, then she goes back to see disciples. Somehow she's found her way back to the tomb. Then she sees the gardener, talks to, uh, sees the angel, and then talks to the gardener, and, and, and that's Jesus. So pretty different accounts. But you get this stunning bit where um, in Matthew, uh, they the women meet Jesus and um uh, it says, uh, you know, that, that they uh, worship and they held, they held, they held his feet. And in in uh, John, you've got, don't hold on to me. And then Jesus, at that point in Matthew, says, go and tell my brothers I'm going to Galilee. And at that point in John, um, Jesus says, I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Well, that's striking. You know, when you've got the same father, you've got your your brothers. So in fact, you find these tiny agreements which is exactly what you'd expect if you've got people independently remembering the same events so i would say that the way the gospels are with agreement on the big stuff jesus came out of the tomb uh, agreement on i mean they always have shiny angels and not shiny jesus or and they may have one or they may have two they may call them men they may call them angels but angels don't have wings back then so that's all fine um and so that that's all um lining up then they have these disagreements on the sort of middle level things and then they have these tiny agreements on smaller things and that to me is exactly what i'd expect if these are independent accounts that's really helpful dan have you got another question 
Any yeah, I have one. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to read the the passage just because just for people listening. Mm-hmm. So in uh, Matthew twenty seven fifty three, it says mm-hmm. that they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the yep. holy city and appeared to many people. And this has been there's been quite a lot of especially online debate I think amongst yeah. uh, Christians' interest in apologetics and and some Christian scholars about whether this uh, this is describing an event that actually occurred or this is a, a literary device that's been uh, em- employed by Matthew. And I'd be really interested to, uh, for you to settle that for us. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, Matthew can settle that. I mean, the problem about the literary device is you're b- basically appealing to a brand new type of uh, entity that you can't really demonstrate a parallel for. So you're supposing that someone's in the middle of writing a um a story which has very similitude, sounds authentic, and then they're, they're meaning you not to take this bit um, literally, but then it talks about an earthquake, and there's also an earthquake at the resurrection with the guards at the tomb. I mean, when are you supposed to decide, you know, an earthquake in Acts is to be taken seriously, but an earthquake in Matthew is not? I mean, ha- what are your criteria? And I think there's a lack of criteria there. So, I mean, in the Christian story, the resurrection is the highest point of everything. So uh, having you know, big stuff go on at this point is not worrying to me. And also uh, with Luke's gospel, when Luke meets this couple of people on the road to Emmaus, they're saying, well, haven't you heard all the stuff that's been going on? So I think there's a lot going on um, in Jerusalem around this time, uh, highlighting that this is remarkable. If Jesus really does die, April the 3rd, AD 33, we also have a um, you know, eclipse of the moon going on at the same time when everyone's having their Passover meal, which is the biggest festival in the Jewish year. Loads of stuff going on. Um, what's the one testable bit in um, this? The test, the one testable bit in this is the earthquake. Uh, and you know, at the and I'm not a geologist, but uh, over at the the site um, deadseaquake.info, uh, and I hope the site's still up. Um, but you can see the geological records that. In this decade, there are, are in you know in the Dead Sea there are sediments showing a uh, sign of an earthquake and an aftershock, um, which would be uh, your, your one from the resurrection in Matthew, um, and so that's the one testable bit of this. Um, obviously, we don't have a lot of records uh, from the time of Jesus other than the four Gospels. Remember, the four Gospels are a, a significant proportion of all of the Jewish literature from the time. Um, that is, you know, yes, Josephus writes uh, at, at, at greater length, but not all about what's going on here at this time. It's actually, um, so to expect this to turn up in lots of other records isn't particularly reasonable. Matthew's got this very high Jerusalem focus. So I think it's just fine, you know. Um, now, then the question of how old does one have to be to a saint? Uh, what, what happens to them afterwards? All these sort of um, curious questions we don't know. Doesn't tell us. Is it? Is it... Is it Phallus who mentions the earthquake, or allegedly mentioned the earthquake? Phallus mentions mentions the darkness, yeah. But the way it is, is Phallus is mentioned as mentioning the darkness by someone later on, a couple of centuries later, called Julius Africanus, who's very clever. Uh, And Julius Africanus, in turn, is mentioned by a guy called George Sincellus about the 8th century. So it's a quote in a quote uh, of that. Right. And if it weren't a miraculous thing, everyone would take that as pretty serious, actually, because there are all sorts of cases in classical literature where you don't actually have the bit surviving, but you do have someone quoting this bit of what someone said. Um, so that that's that would be perfectly normal if it weren't for the fact that it's a pretty remarkable claim. 
Um, but, you know, I'm happy to go with that Thalos thing being real. Awesome. But I wouldn't put a lot of weight on it, so I don't even make it. <laughs> no. Um, there's, there's really an uh, important question that we just need to get your response to here. Uh, what, what do you think of Dr. Richard Carrier's point that, the G that Jesus' resurrection involved space aliens? <laughs> it probably has well, an interesting way of putting it, space <laughs> aliens. Uh, in, in, the, in the sense that, I mean, is, is Jesus an alien in the sense that he comes from elsewhere? I suppose that's what an alien is. Um, from outside, I mean, you know, um, so maybe I agree. Um, you know, uh, but, but I mean, when I go to America, they they put me in the aliens line. So I, I'm I'm not. Yeah, I mean, we'd have to have a bit more discussion about the nuance of alien there. Um, but I mean, I actually find um, Rich Carey a very interesting uh, figure because he. Um, <laughs> I, I agree with him that the Old Testament and Jesus fit together really well. Now, hmm. for, for him, that means Jesus is made up on the basis of the Old Testament. For me, it's no. I mean, just like the Old Testament is preparing the way for Jesus. Um, where I find his method falls down is you read his books and he's saying, well, Plutarch says this and so-and-so says that. And I say, but according to your method, I shouldn't even know. I don't even know that Plutarch exists. I don't know that anything exists. Hmm. So what I don't get is how he knows that Jesus didn't exist, but Plutarch did. And that seems to be just this inconsistency, which he just never addresses, which is right throughout his works. Um, but, you know, he writes too much as well. But. <laughs> he write, does write a lot. I can't quite keep up. <laughs> uh, cool. Uh, just uh, I think this is a quick question. Has Peter heard of J.D. Atkins? His dissertation showed Luke and John did not intend their resurrection accounts to defend the physicality against docetics. <laughs> it was taken for granted in... Desceticists, is that the one? It was taken for granted. I haven't um, uh, read that dissertation. Um, I, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to do that. All I can say is um, I'd need to know what the arguments were in the dissertation. Uh, that's not a uh, majority view because I think uh, one of the things you have in John's gospel is a lot of emphasis on on the physicality. I mean, why bother talking about the the blood and the water? Why talk about um, touch my hands and my side. I mean, we invite Thomas to touch his hands and his side. So I think anyone who's saying that someone writing an account, inviting someone to touch their hand and the side, actually doesn't want you to think it's physical, and who also is talking about an empty tomb, you know, that, 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 and, and who, who, by the way, is preparing fish to eat, you know, uh, that, that's a bit tricky. And also, you, you've got the eating of fish in Luke. So I think all of those reasons, I wouldn't really go for that. Uh, just, just a reminder for those like me, reminding just those are just the ones that think that Jesus didn't have a full body. Is that well? The idea, yeah, the Greek word dokeo is to seem. So the idea is he seemed uh, to be human, but wasn't, you know, fully physically human. Right. He was above that. So yeah, the the first sort of um, heresy or variation on. Um, the earlier Christian doctrine is that Jesus was not human. Um, it wasn't that Jesus was uh, human and not God. That's helpful. Um, one thing I'd quite like to, to, to hear your view about, obviously um, it's quite an, an interest probably the last 10 years over undesigned coincidences. And I yeah. know you mentioned that in, in, in your yeah. book. Um, would you be able to give a, a maybe just sort of, explain what the importance of undesigned coincidences are maybe some some of those better the sort of more interesting examples 
Yeah, so, I mean, the, the idea is um, undesigned. They don't seem to have been particularly put there by the authors to make their stories look authentic. And you get, let's see, you might have two different um, writers and they um, are writing from quite different perspectives. And then at a certain point, there are these really subtle agreements between um, their narratives. That, that could be an undesigned coincidence. So when um, you have um, Jesus praying in the synoptics saying, to his father in the, in the garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. And then in John's gospel, when uh, Peter's all keen to fight for Jesus at that, uh, you know, a long while later, uh, Jesus says to Peter, shouldn't I drink the cup that's been given me? So in other words, um, there you've got a subtle agreement because neither of them are reporting cup in the same context, but it's a very near in time. And it would make sense if Jesus had cup on his mind, that he'd use that, um, expression you get them with the feeding of the five thousand, where uh, Luke sets it uh, near Bethsaida, and um, John uh, has this conversation set with locals of Bethsaida uh, for the feeding of the five thousand, where he, Jesus is talking to Philip and Andrew, who are, who are from that place, and it's you only learn in John's gospel they're from that. You get it with the Passover chronology, um, uh, the way Mark and John actually come together on this. So I think uh, there are those sorts of things, which are the sorts of things you'd expect if something's uh, true. You also get them with the Old Testament. So Isaac marries a cousin one generation lower than him uh, when he marries Rebecca. But of course, in the story, um, Isaac's born pretty late to, on to Abraham. So that makes a lot of sense. So you get those sorts of things going on. Um, and um, they were first came up with a guy called John J. Blunt, uh, who wrote uh, books of those um, 190 years ago. And then Lydia McGrew has developed the argument a bit more recently. Uh... Good. Thank you. That's, that's helpful. Phil, did you have any um, other questions? I know we had some from Facebook earlier. Yeah, I so the one were. you kind of asked already on Facebook was the uh, Verba or Vox, so we're, we're kind of good with that one. Okay. Um, the the one I was just looking for it. Someone asked about Lydia McGrew uh, and a new book on. Oh, yeah, uh, and it's been. Able, have you been able to read her new book on John? Is that where the undesigned? Yeah, I mean, the Eye of the Beholder. I I, I like it. I wrote a commendation. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a good book. Nice. Yep. You you you've read that one. Um, cool. Um, we've got some questions that aren't actually connected to the gospel so so dan if you've got anything more on the on the gospels before we move on are we, are we happy to no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy if, if peter's quick we've got 10 more minutes we can yeah. um, there's quite a lot of interest i think on on the COVID old testament or anything i don't know anything about. <laughs> <laughs> what does the new testament say about covid uh we won't go there. talk about pan pandemic or at least you know jesus talks about um uh, pestilence says will happen so there's no reason to be a pestilence denier there you go. Hey, I like that. I like, I like what you did there. Here's one. Oh, it is Gospels. I missed this one. Uh, John 1, 18. Some translations say Jesus is the only begotten son. Others say the only God. Why do we see this difference? Yeah. So the word son in Greek is four letters uh, and the word God is four letters, but they each get abbreviated uh, in early manuscripts. So that with son, you just get the first letter, which is upsilon, and the final letter, which is sigma. And in uh, the word for God, you just get the first letter, which is theta, and the final letter, which is sigma. So they're only actually one letter difference in the manuscript. And so it's very easy without anyone having a, you know, a nasty agenda for one to get changed into the other. And people debate which is which. Uh, yeah. And so uh, we actually went for um, son in John 1.18 in our um, edition of the Greek New Testament. Uh, but a lot of people have gone for 
uh, God in that case. Um, and uh, the argument's quite finely balanced on that. But uh, what I can say is whichever way you read it in John's gospel, Jesus is clearly the son of God and God. Awesome. Uh, these are these are great. Here's, here's another quick one. Uh, somebody please answer me. Can Dr. Williams be referred to as an OT scholar since he has mastery of the biblical languages? If 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 you really care, I mean, I did a PhD in Old Testament, but the um, you know, I, I'm I I suppose I'm an active biblical scholar, but I think there's a danger that people try and puff up the credentials of people. Mm-hmm. So people are trying to gain credibility, and people try, try and gain credibility for Christianity by trying to talk up scholars we have on our side look we've got loads of scholars here in tinder house got you know um about well when it's not pandemic we have 40 or 50 people here on 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 a daily basis mostly working on their phd or above there are there are plenty of scholars around but we shouldn't need to exaggerate that and if you are relying on credentials to point people to christianity there's a fundamental problem because right at the center of christianity you have the whole the most shameful thing of ever jesus dying on a cross so using human credentials to point towards shame as the center of our message doesn't really work and it also i I think it, it it gets too ego competitive you actually um you know don't forget that jesus was condemned to death by a group of scholars that's who the sanhedrin were so if we say accept christianity because that's what scholars go for there's a bit of a problem uh, hmm. uh yeah. so i mean i would be worried if there were no scholars who went for christianity but i'm, I'm not worried if um only a minority go uh, go for a full-blown form that, that that that's fine i mean i wouldn't expect anything uh you know that that's that's perfectly uh, fine that's helpful. Good. Uh, hopefully that answers your question, computer theist. Uh, among NT scholars, do most now believe that Paul didn't write all the letters ascribed to him, or do most still believe he did write them all? Impossible to know. And the reason why is we have no list of New Testament scholars. How do we define what a New Testament scholar is? Because <laughs> obviously people on the more secular end sometimes have a more exclusionary view of who a scholar is uh, than uh, th- those who don't, because for them, scholarship is a secular enterprise. So those who are bringing uh, what they see as faith presuppositions into it, they might say are not scholars. So that's why you're never going to um, be able to come up with a list, because there are people who spend their entire life studying the New Testament, maybe as a Bible translator, um, out in Papua New Guinea, who'd never get translated, uh, you know, uh, thought to be a New Testament scholar, and yet they're very scholarly and they are studying New Testament. So I'd want to say, look, um, if I take our, our, our local Cambridge lads, we've got four, um, uh, four tenured uh, lecturers here in the university, I would think the majority would go for, uh, well, I mean, at least two of them would go for all Paul's letters being written by by him. But you know, it, it, it can vary and, and, and uh, in, in terms of where opinion polls uh, reside. I'd want to say I read Paul's uh, letters in Greek before I knew there was debate about their style. I didn't notice any stylistic differences. There are some minor stylistic differences between the three pastoral epistles and the other ones. Um, and that's what you'd expect because they're private letters. Uh, hmm. So at the end of the day, I don't think there's any compelling reason why he can't have written all of them. That's really helpful, I see. I mean, on the sort of how things were written in that time, um, it'd be just really interesting to, to pause on that for a moment. Um, just would it be possible that because the general idea of, that I've heard is that someone would be um, dictating, you'd have a scribe, potentially a couple other people in the room, it wouldn't be the 
medieval art of one person sitting and writing would that have an impact on the style to some extent as well that maybe the, yeah the so, i mean people do use um amanuenses they use secretaries but for the copying process there's very little evidence of, of dictation so very, right. very i mean uh, very few cases there are some cases where you know one person dictates to multiple people whatever but it's not widespread but certainly if you were posh you know upper class you'd have your slaves write down stuff for you and and, and so on um so um there's there, there's a lot of, of use of secretaries and obviously in, in the new testament we have um reference to tertius and sylvanus or silas both being secretaries for uh letters so i'm sure that ha happens okay that, that's helpful uh dan you got another question yeah, I mean, uh, just why I mentioned the Old Testament. What are your what's um, your, your kind of view on on Moses and the um, you know the Torah in terms of authorship? Uh, well, Moses isn't a big deal. I mean, he's he's a very important guy, um, and I think uh, I mean, there's nothing in the Torah that says Moses wrote all of the first five books. I think there is uh, the important thing is that these are are true. And of course, there are times when it does say he wrote things. So that's uh, uh, part of it. I think he didn't write the account of his own death. And I actually think that the last chapter of Deuteronomy works best the later you have it written. Because it says, looking back on Moses' life, no one has risen like him. Well, the later I can put that chapter, the better. Because, I, uh, you know, in, in terms of making sense of things. So I want to go both for it being historically true um, to... Um, but the actual time that, you know, the last time this was written down, uh, that may not that, that that may that may vary quite a bit, um, and, and and that that to me isn't the important uh, thing. The, the, it, the important thing is the content. So when you've got Deuteronomy being set as a speech to, uh, by Moses, then it has to be a speech by Moses, um, and I think you can make a good case for that. I mean, there isn't lots of stuff about, um, you know, Jerusalem uh in 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 the pentateuch they um the names that you have in the pentateuch differ from the names that you'd have later on in in um is israel and they don't have names with yahweh in personal names um they're, they're just completely missing and some people say you know the torah is written by different people there are four different sources and so on but all i can say is however many sources they are they all avoid these names um and so uh, this is a sort of early feature. Then you look at, um, say, um, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Levi, Levi, Merari, Kohath, Phineas. All these names are Egyptian names. Um, and so that makes sense. Again, if it, it's a generation coming out of Egypt. Um, so I, I think there are, there are things like that. You can say this works. I'm not an archaeologist. I can't talk about the archaeology. I can just talk about the language. But on language terms, it, it works you know, as early. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned Exodus there. So Egypt. Mm -hmm. So what do you, do you do? You have a um, is it that like Exodus is specifically recently. I think come on a lot of criticism. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are your kind of views on on, on that? Like well, when did it occur? Is it you know? But I'm, I'm much of an expert and I've never been to Egypt would love to go. So, you know, I, I can, I can uh, speak out of my deep ignorance here. Um, but I mean, I, I do, you know, read some, some of the ancient texts and I think there, there are a number of uh, uh, points to make. I mean, one is that the, the basic pattern of um, 
Israelites, or let's say Abraham coming over from Ur down into the land of Canaan, people spending some time in Egypt and then coming out, does seem to fit with broad patterns that we know from history. That is, we know that there are large numbers of Asiatics in Egypt in the middle of the second millennium. There's a big um, influence of Egyptian on Hebrew. Uh, that is, there are lots and lots of Egyptian words in Hebrew. Um, so I can say that as a linguist uh, uh, fairly safely. Um, and, and so there are things like that which, which, which make sense. Um, and also in Egyptian history, remember, there's only about three or four actual historiographical Egyptian writings. What I mean is that where the Egyptians actually write uh, chronicle histories. Now, often you get these things that seem historiographical, but typically it, it's, a, um, it's a religious text in which a pharaoh is telling you of his triumphs and you're wondering what the reality the connection between this is and reality is that that's the common most common form of text and we also know that they used to delete uh their previous pharaohs that on you know that people they didn't like the damnatio memoriae it's called the damnation of the memory um so the the question about how you put egyptian history together is always a, 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 a tricky thing uh when we when we come to um Israelite history, we have some very unusual things here because we do have this story of we came not from this land of Canaan. You would have thought they'd want to say, oh, this is our land. That's why we should have it. They actually claim to have come from elsewhere. Um, that shouldn't be um, dismissed. I think that that's a significant testimony. I think that's it's helpful. not that you can all be put together in some simple way, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm aware of time, and uh, we haven't asked our last question yet. Um, so an hour and a quarter. Um, do, do you have time for one question before our final one? Sure. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so this this one's probably a little bit on on what we've kind of going back to the manuscript type stuff. Do we have ancient copies uh, of the manuscripts for the Old Testament in the same way that we do for the New? Uh, and do you know how far back we go? Yeah, so I mean, not nothing like as far back as with the new, but then, I mean, that shouldn't bother anyone. Hmm. Uh, and again, people get very fixated on what's the earliest thing I can prove, but partly because people are so historically ignorant that they sort of feel that there's, if they can see a physical copy, that's somehow better evidence than if they can't. Hmm. Um, what I'd want to say is look, if you talk to Erasmus five centuries ago, his earliest copy of the New Testament was the 12th century. Then there was a gap of a thousand years, and guess what? Over five centuries, it's got less and less. Now, with the Old Testament, the earliest complete copy of the whole thing is from the year a thousand and eight. Um, but if you say, okay, so we don't know anything before, actually, we know got a load from before because we have manuscripts going right the way um, back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and at least for the priestly blessing in Numbers chapter six, we actually have that from around the time of the exile. So you, you have stuff uh, going back. We know that people wrote stuff and we know that they wrote on perishable material, not just because it perished, but because actually uh, we've got cultural references to that's what they did. And because they you get uh, seal impressions that they used to put on the fibers of, of uh, papyri and so on. We know they use leather in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So these things just normally don't survive uh, unless they're put in very dry climates in jars like in the Dead Sea Caves. Um, that might happen. So 
I'm not worried that they don't exist any more than I'm not worried that I don't have the earliest copy of my computer files. Think about your computer files and the fact that you, you don't have the earliest copy of it, but you have a later copy. Um, and that, that's happening all the time. We are losing our earliest copies of our computer files and no one's getting really worried and saying, I've lost my original, you know, <laughs> in a copy of culture and that, that's the way it works. And what did scribes do? Scribes' job was to copy, just like servers' jobs are to back up your files. Um, mm. And so unless we're going to say that the whole ancient cultures were just, you know, numpties and just getting everything wrong, then generally things get transmitted. It doesn't matter whether it's Arabic literature, Chinese literature, Greek literature. Generally, things get transmitted. I thought it was very helpful as well in your book. You pointed to the fact that... Um, the Christian scholars were generally scribes or monks. The, the people that copied were often Christian. Yeah. And often people will go, well, that means they had a bias when they're copying. But I thought it was quite helpful that you pointed out, well, actually, they copied all the other things they disagreed with as well. All uh, the pagan literature <laughs> preserved through manuscripts, you know, it's getting preserved through monks. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we're quite happy. Christians were quite happy copying what they disagreed with why would they then try and write insertions into things? They're, they're yeah. trying to be faithful to history. Or put it another way, the Romans lost the records of the culture from before then, but the Christians didn't lose the records mm -hmm. of the Roman culture. Amazing. Cool. So a final question, uh, as we want to honour your time, and th thank you. We've, we've already yeah. had uh, good comments here. This interview has been fantastic. Um, so lots of uh, good comments there. So just... Um, can you help us out with some resources? There's someone who wants you to list off beginner, intermediate, and advanced with regards to um, <laughs> the Gospels. But um, plug anything that you are involved with well, that we can Yeah, so I, I really want to plug just one thing, but it comes out three times a year, and it's free. And that is the Tinder House Inc. magazine. So it's Tinder House, T-H, and Inc., as in think. And this is free, and we will post it to you. If you're in the UK, and if you're not, we can send it you know, electronically. Uh, and this is written by Bible scholars who are positive about the Bible, peer-reviewed by Bible scholars, so it's not just one person's opinion, and also then peer-reviewed by communication specialists to make sure we're not talking too geeky. Um, <laughs> so uh, in this issue, you can look at how archaeology can help us understand the Bible better, uh, scribes using handwriting to investigate variation in Bible manuscripts, who were the Assyrians, I mean, it's a proper glossy magazine with all these sort of pictures and it's free and we'll send you 10 copies. You can give them out in your church. Uh, we have a regular column by Christopher Ash, the Bible exegete uh, talking about things. And um, it's, I think it's well-written. Um, you know, how do we sign I'm up? Um, you sign up. Okay. So how do you sign up? You go <laughs> to um, tinderhouse.com forward slash magazine. How do you spell magazine? I always get it. Is it S or a Z? <laughs> Sorry? Magazine with an S or a Z. <laughs> Z. Z. Magazine. Yeah, I'm going to sign up. I'm going to get myself a copy as well. Yeah. magazine And uh, yeah. There you go. Alan, I'm sold. Take my money if it's free. Yeah, you can donate. We are a charity. So yeah. <laughs> everyone signed up favorite price there we go signed up good well I'm, I'm glad we've got a few more subscribers for you and um good dr williams it's been such a fantastic interview really enjoyed it and it's been very quick fire so i've, I've covered uh, yeah. a, 
loads in an hour and 15. Thank you so well, much for your time. Uh, thank you, and uh, God bless you. Thank you. Um, those of you watching, thank you for watching and being with us tonight. Thank you for your questions uh, and comments. And if you have enjoyed this interview, do subscribe. And if you really want, feel free to join in on Patreon. Uh, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash critical witness. Thanks again. God bless you. Have a good rest of your evening or day whenever you're listening to this. See you later. for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you like what you hear please do give us a subscribe on youtube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback get in touch let us know what you think if you really enjoyed the content and want to support it find us on patreon.com